and welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This episode is part of a series that features conversations from Summit 22, where we focused on regenerative solutions. Today, we're looking at the role of policy, why it's important to incentivize circular methods, the challenges a move towards circularity presents, and how this can be helped. I'm Pippa Shorley, and I'm joined by my colleague, Maya Adams. Hi, Maya. Hi, Pippa. So first, we'll hear from Shardul Agrawala, the head of the Environment and Economy Division at the OECD, and Andrea Liverani, lead sustainable development expert at the World Bank Group. They spoke to Joss Blerio, the foundation's executive lead of institutions, governments and cities. I'm uh, delighted to be joined today by Shardul from the OECD and Andrea from the World Bank. And the great pleasure really is about putting to the stage and on the stage a collaboration that has been going on for the past few years, discreetly in the background, as we do in policy circles. But we have been uh, working together on the universal policy goals, and I thank you and your teams for inputting into that. We've also collaborated with the World Bank on the uh, report on addressing the circularity gap in EU member states and with the OECD on the global plastics outlook recently. And Shadu, I'll turn to you to get us started talking about plastics. Last time you took part in a foundation event was in Davos 2019, and at the time you said you had uh, counted 130 different plastic policies specifically around the globe. Just to give us a quick stock take, how did that evolve in, in the meantime, and where are we now? Thanks very much, Josh, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, so, well, shortly after we spoke in Davos, uh, uh, we were hit with COVID-19. And, and that led to a partial reversal in our attitudes towards single-use plastics. They were literally on our hands and faces uh, for the next two years. And, and so some of, I mean, not only did you know, some attention to plastics go off the agenda, our relationship also began to reverse to some extent. But that said, uh, I think there's a new breath of momentum uh, at different levels. I mean, there are talks for a global plastics treaty, uh, which are underway now. But even at the national level, uh, there's much more action happening again. So just five days ago uh, in India, uh, there's a more expanded ban on single-use plastics that has come into force uh, with, uh, with many more products which are on the list. And, and that, that's clearly a positive development. So these policies, uh, you know, the 130-odd countries we talked about, they were largely talking about taxes or bans on frequently littered single-use items. And, and the impact cannot be understated because they really led to a shift in public consciousness about the environmental impact of the problem. Uh, my son, who could only, four-year-old at that time, who could only drink milk with a plastic straw, that was the only way for him to consume milk, uh, you know, paper straws didn't work. And so I had a challenge, and when plastic straws went off the shelves, I actually hoarded plastic straws uh, just to make him drink milk. But two, two weeks or three weeks later, he voluntarily gave up his plastic straw because he also internalized some of the environmental consequences of it. So sometimes public policies do have an impact which can go down to the individual level, even to the level of children. So that's the good part of those policies. The downside is that most of these policies are addressing a very small part of the waste stream, uh, probably 1% or something like that. 
the other thing is they're not providing incentives for circularity. What they're trying to do is stop litter. So what we need to do, and this is not just true for plastics, this is true for materials more generally, uh, we need policies which are much more ambitious and they attack in the sense that they attack the environmental harm that we do all through the life cycle of the material and the product. And so just to give one example with, you know, there's clearly a very ambitious uh, uh, you know, policy initiative underway. That's the Circular Economy Action Plan of the European Union, where they are confronting this holy grail of product design and how to put policies in place to incentivize product design for circularity. And, and, and that's where I think we need to devote a lot more policy attention. Yeah, so if we're honest, uh, at global scale, it's still very much a, a downstream agenda. Is that what you see as well with your, the countries you deal with, Andrea? Um, thanks, Joss, and thanks for having uh, the, the bank here. I think <clears throat> we, we mostly deal with um, uh, you know, low, lower income, lower middle income countries, and, and that's definitely the case. I think most countries are still struggling with the basic elements of the waste management agenda. Uh, that is not only true uh, in this set of countries, even in Europe. Uh, we know that there are a number of, of European member states that are still struggling with very high rates of landfilling and very low recycling rates. And um, I think today I heard a couple of word prices um, a couple of times. Uh, that has partly to do with the fact that there are no uh, ambitious or ambitious enough policies in order to properly um, cost waste. Waste very often, uh, wasting does not cost us anything. Uh, landfilling rates in Europe range from 90 to 95 euros in certain countries like Austria and the UK to 1 to 3 euros in other countries. Certain EU member states do not have a landfilling tax. When putting into the landfill does not cost anything, clearly all the incentives from the start are geared towards that type of action. And there's, that creates an incredible inertia in the system. Um, if today a government or a subnational government city had to enter a contract with a waste management company, that price would remain set over the duration of the, of the entire contract. For 20 years, that would be the price. The company is essentially paid to put money into the landfill rather than investing in, for instance, sorting and recycling. But that is not necessarily a bad thing. I think what we're seeing is an incredibly higher awareness of the problem throughout, and increasingly a number of countries that are packaging the waste problem within a broader circular economy agenda. One, one example outside of Europe that is really exciting for us is Turkey, where um, at very high level the, the, the government and above have launched a very important waste management plan that aims strictly at circularity. Now the question is, where do the incentives come from? Obviously there is an element of philosophy that by reducing the waste upstream, then you also solve the waste problem. But clearly this also has a competitiveness and trade dimension. What Europe is doing is creating shockwaves in, uh, in its vicinity, in the neighborhood, and countries are really looking at what that will mean for the exports to Euro and the competitiveness of their business. Yeah, and if we accept the analogy that uh, the economy is a household or a house, we need to look at the foundations as well. And is, to be brutally honest, is it credible to think that we'll get to scale if we don't challenge the fundamentals of the cost and incentive structure of the economy? 
absolutely. question is valid for both of you, by the way. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think if you look at the cost and incentive structure, I mean, the question of a level playing field was brought up uh, in one of the previous sessions. Uh, we are living in a world where, even if you just look at OECD and emerging economies, uh, governments are providing almost $180 billion a year of support through tax breaks and other incentives for fossil fuel production. Uh, if you look at consumption subsidies, the IEA estimates almost $450 billion per year of support for fossil fuel consumption. Now, let's talk about agricultural subsidies. You have half a trillion dollars of agricultural subsidies. So all the nice examples of regenerative agriculture are not supported by these kinds of subsidies which are promoting intensification of agriculture and not the kinds of examples that you were seeing. So we need to correct the environment in which these innovative ideas that you've seen through the day can flourish and removing subsidies uh, is, is certainly one uh, aspect of it. Uh, another uh, issue in terms of incentives is obviously we need to provide positive incentives for things that do make sense. So here, one of the things that's talked about a lot is uh, reducing VAT for repair. And, th and that's a very good idea because it incentivizes uh, consumers and, and, and service providers to, uh, to have these facilities where we can repair products and, 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 and use them longer. A uh, couple of complications. One is VAT is a huge source of revenue for many governments. Uh, it could be 10, 20, even 30%. So, so you're moving a revenue stream for the government. Uh, there are also concerns that the tax code is already too complicated and whether these exemptions could be worked out. Uh, but there's also an issue where these kinds of things could run counter to intellectual property protection. Uh, when you repair a product, at what point is it repair and at what point does it mean reconstruction of a product, creating a new product? Uh, which might be protected by intellectual property. So there are a whole range of issues once you go a little bit under the surface which need to be thought out and ironed out uh, you know, in order to even generate uh, some of these positive incentives uh, that we need. Yeah, and we could think about, for instance, taxing uh, resource use much more, but that also brings us back to the trade dimension because some countries in a global economy are dependent for their GDP on extraction and they create value through the sales of their finite resources. So we also need to address the fact that there's going to be imbalances and how do we potentially level that playing field at the global level if we want to get to scale, Andrea? I think, you know, also building on what Shardul just said, I think we agree that you need public policy and those public policies are essentially three big, big buckets, regulatory type of policies, a lot of work's being done in Europe now. Um, fiscal policy, changing prices, and behavioral type of communication awareness raising policy that really are capable of shifting consumer preferences. But if you, have, if you are effective in any jurisdiction, in any economy, in any country, those sorts of policies, you do create competitiveness constraints for your producers. Um, costs go up, the cost of regulation has to be factored in, and those consumers will become less competitive. Um, that creates leakage, creates consumers that leave your jurisdiction and end up in jurisdiction with less um, environmentally stringent type of norms and prices. And that should immediately translate into forms of trade protection, let's call it for what they are, 
but trade-enabling mechanisms that allow everybody to get to the same level playing field. The problem is that certain countries will not be able to get to the level trading field. You will see leakage move to jurisdiction where there is access to capital, where the risk environment is such that investors will come in, where there's an element of R&D that is capable of copying other type of innovation in investments, but very um, non-diversified um, export produce, commodity producing countries will not be able to basically get on that, on that level. Those will be impacted. That's, that's why it's important when we think about the trade and the type of policies, we think about how to help these countries to get to that level. And I think companies like Nestle or um, Coca-Cola or Pepsi, companies that lead big value chains have a massive role in bringing those producers in those countries up. One final question for each of you, in terms of getting very specific about these price and cost structure, what is the measure that is not so far away from us that can actually be implemented? What is the thing that we should get started on at country level? The OECD does a lot of policy recommendation. What would be your one measure that you would say puts us on a, on a pathway towards transition? Well, I hate to end by quoting Yogi Berra, but it's one of those things, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. Mm. Circular, circular economy is definitely one area where we, we, lack measure, we lack methodologies, measurement, and data. So defining circularity, at least what's our direction of travel, how do we measure it, I think is a first-order issue before we can even talk about uh, you know, putting policies in place and defining whether we are making progress or not. So, that would be, if I had to pick one thing, I would start there. Andrea? I would say two. I'll try to be brief. The first is, we talked about design today, about design products, design circular business. We have to talk about redesigning fiscal um, frameworks and fiscal policies. So circular tax reform that brings up the level of taxation for raw materials that today averages between 0 and 2% for extraction and production to something higher than that and recycling the revenue streams into lowering the taxation, the fiscal burden on labor. You end up taxing employment less, a good employment, and taxing externalities from production higher up. And the second one, a public policy, is through procurement. We've been talking about circular and green procurement, sustainable procurement, nowadays circular procurement a long time. Governments have created markets for centuries. France started doing that. We need to provide those incentives. If it costs a little bit more, taxpayers in wealthy countries will shoulder the cost of the, the extra cost of circularity in procurement. But this is the way to incentivize business, is to create markets through also the public offers. So it's about growing the right things. Skills, creativity, competitiveness, innovation and giving, of course, the uh, visibility, predictability to business as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, both and We very much look forward to continuing the great collaboration. So as we heard, Shardell says we need to be more ambitious with our policies to accelerate the circular economy instead of looking downstream. And Andrea said there's no incentive to keep waste out of landfill as it doesn't cost anything. So next we'll hear from Helena Braun, member of the cabinet of Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president of the European Commission, leading the work on the European Green Deal. 
She spoke to Miranda Schnitger, the foundation's government lead, about the commission's recently announced nature package and how the policy plays a vital role in creating a nature-positive economy. Miranda started by asking Helena how the nature package worked as a socio-economic package and where it fit within the European Green Deal and how it will contribute to Europe's economic development. A little over a fortnight ago, the Commission announced a nature package. Um, And at the launch of this, Franz Timmermans said that this was a socio-economic package and that it was a core part of the European Green Deal. Can you help us make that connection? Why, Why are those two things together and how does that feed into Europe's economic development? Thank you very much, uh, Miranda. Thank you, everyone. It's really a pleasure to be here, especially after the long pandemic uh, without this summit physically. But indeed, um, two weeks ago, or was it actually, yeah, one week ago, we launched um, at the European Commission a big nature package as part of, as a core part of the European Green Deal. And the European Green is, well, Europe's economic growth strategy. So one may wonder how does nature fit in here. But of course, I mean, we, for our well-being and for our economic uh, development, we are fully dependent on healthy ecosystems. And uh, if we look, I mean, 50% of global economy is dependent on nature quite directly. We have sectors, agriculture, food, drinks, construction, which are key to all of us, that are fully dependent. And, well, actually, the entire economy is pretty dependent because it's quite difficult to do any business on a a dead planet. Um, At the same time, in the last decades, I mean, we have been sowing the branch we are sitting on at an incredible speed. The cost of that is, is huge, the cost of ecosystem degradation. If we look, for example, I mean, the cost of soil degradation, for example, in Europe only, it's 50 billion euros a year, 50 billion. Um, We also see increasingly risks for our food security, food production, which also in many parts of of Europe is already in decline. Uh, So it's quite understandable that the World Economic Forum, for example, already for several years in a row is, um, well, telling us that the biodiversity loss is the third most severe, let's say, existential threat uh, to humanity together with climate change and extreme weather events. And those, well, those three are all also fully interlinked. So in a way, it's no surprise that, I mean, businesses from different, very different sectors, big and small, are increasingly realizing that uh, the biodiversity loss is, a, let's say, a vital threat for their activity. And that is why perhaps we also received such strong calls from different business uh, actors to publish, let's say, a very ambitious nature restoration proposal. And so in this context, that's, uh, that's what we did. Uh, we presented the, uh, the first, let's say, binding EU uh, legislation to restore ecosystems all across the board. Um, and it's actually also, well, the first of its kind in the world. And we are not talking here about uh, protected areas. We are really talking about bringing biodiversity back everywhere 
and actually spatially to the areas where economic activity is taking place. So the agricultural land, the production forests, areas where we fish, our urban ecosystems, our urban infrastructure, um, because these are the areas where the biodiversity loss, uh, loss has been the, the biggest. So we are setting, once the law is also adopted by the European co-legislators, binding targets, binding measures that all member states will have to, um, well, have to take. And it does not mean that in those areas that will be restored that the economic activity has to stop. It's actually not at all that. It's basically about everything that we have heard today. So if we take agricultural ecosystems, we have to change the way we do things. So agroforestry, using less pesticides, uh, the same in the fisheries area or when we talk about forest, moving more to uneven age uh, mixed uh, stands, uh, ensuring that there is sufficient quantities of dead wood and so on, because these elements are actually guaranteeing the longer term resilience of these ecosystems also for socio-economic purposes. We also have very specific urban greening targets to really bring back the greenery from trees to uh, roofs and, uh, and green walls uh, back to the cities, integrate greenery to the, to the urban infrastructure. Um, and maybe I would just say one word about, the, let's say, the cost, um, uh, because what we see according to our rather thorough assessment is that every euro we invest uh, according to this legislation or that we would be investing would bring at least eight euros uh, in return. So we also find that this package is quite important in order to get us finally out of this myth as if nature restoration was, let's say, a cost without return. I mean, it's really the opposite. We are fully dependent on, uh, on, uh, for our well-being on healthy ecosystems and our economies are fully dependent. So that's why it is kind of part of Europe's growth strategy. Thank you for setting all that out. And when we were talking earlier, the fact that this is not about protected areas, this is really about the economic, uh, the, everything that we are building everything else off. Um, really stood out to me. Um, so, in amongst all this, how are you going about it? Where does circular economy fit into this? Yes, well, this is a this, this is a very important question because actually, if we look at in the nature restoration context, perhaps circular economy is one of, if not the, the solution, then definitely one of the key solutions. And of course, it all comes down to the fact that 90% of biodiversity loss is related to the way we, well, uh, extract and process uh, natural resources, basically the way we produce and, and consume. And actually, Ellen MacArthur's foundation has uh, set out very nicely how the three circular economy principles, how they actually help us deliver on, let's say, reversing the biodiversity loss. So perhaps the third one, the third principle, regenerating nature, is most directly linked to the nature restoration law proposal that we presented. It's really about changing the way we farm. It's about moving to more biodiversity-friendly forestry practices, uh, restoring our drained peatlands and so on and so forth. But also the first um, uh, two principles are, well, absolutely crucial. I mean, we need to design the, the waste and pollution out of our, let's say, systems, our economies. And we also um, 
absolutely need to make sure that the materials products are kept in the system for, for as long as uh, possible. And um, this is not about, I mean, just simply, you know, moving from fossil-based to bio-based materials and continuing with business as usual. This is a temptation that we sometimes, let's say, notice. Uh, but this is really not sufficient. I mean, the pressures come from the fact that we are absolutely excessively using the primary resources and we need to, well, reduce their consumption. And if we, I mean, make sure that the products that we, uh, we produce and that we buy, they are more durable, they are made for being reused, they are repairable, made increasingly of recycled materials, we can significantly reduce the key pressures on, uh, on nature and biodiversity. Um, and uh, this is actually a, what another proposal that we recently made um, in March this year is about. It's about eco-design for sustainable products, where we precisely want to make sure that in the, let's say, coming decade, perhaps it will take a bit longer, we make sure that if a product is sold on the EU market, it is fully in compliance with the circularity principles. And if it's not, it's not necessarily welcome uh, to the EU market. And the, maybe the second strand to mention is also the circular business models that we have heard quite a lot about today. We seriously also want to look into how we can really boost them to put, uh, bring them from niche to mainstream, so on-demand uh, production, uh, repair, reuse services, um, uh, products as service and so on and so forth. Because here again, these create incentives for us to reduce our dependence on primary resources, decrease those pressures on, on biodiversity while still keeping, well, a good economic, uh, economic logic. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I mean, you mentioned there... Clearly, this has a link to biodiversity. COP15 is coming up later this year. Um, there's also a link to climate. COP27 comes up later this year. So I imagine this is part of the package that Europe will bring, bring to those discussions. Um, and I'm also delighted that you know, we also talked about the, the wider context, and yet the commitment to the European Green Deal is still very much there front and centre. It's quite difficult to do anything on a dead planet, says Helena. And I think this is a strong call to address issues like biodiversity loss and climate change for a healthy economy. It's also important to ensure that businesses are encouraged to use circular practices as the default. And we'll hear more about regenerative solutions next time. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you.